This is a full The Now Media production. Welcome back to Grundy's Grumbles. Episode 13, Unlucky for Some, is entitled How to Win Another Radio Licence. Are you paying attention? I did say another radio licence. As usual first though, let's name check some of those people who've been in contact over the last week. Rosemary Conabeer said, great stuff, Tony. Look forward to next week, but with some trepidation. Deborah Mann, who was sales manager when I went back into Reading 107 some years later, says, good morning from Vietnam. We're really international now. You can't stop halfway through these podcasts. They need to be longer. I'm not sure that's a comment or an instruction. <laughs> Cheers, Deborah. Brenda Lowe says, you're very good at leaving us hanging. It's a cliffhanger. I'm desperately wanting to know what's going to happen next. Well, the good news is, Brenda, you're just about to find out. Thank you. Hugh Broom emailed me under the heading podcast. Well done, which trust me, coming from Hugh Broom is a compliment. He was a senior journalist at Reading 107, a farmer and an overall good guy. Hugh says, enjoying the podcast. It's a good thing the elderly can access 21st century technology so easily to tell their story. I think Hugh there is having a go at me. Sod off, Broom. Anyway, he goes on. Seriously, it's a fascinating listen and reinforces the fact that working for you and your dearly missed brother, Tim, at 107 was such a great first job for me. I learned so much. For instance, producing the Reading Half Marathon on a budget of 50p and a packet of fags was so character building. We'll be hearing more from Hugh on his thoughts on Reading 107 in future correspondence. And always with Hugh, it's worth listening to, by the way. Robert Kenny was next. He sent to the Facebook account, Grundy's Grumbles. He said, isn't it strange when you think you know somebody reasonably well, but then you find out loads that you had no idea about. Just caught up with episodes 10 to 12 of this podcast from my former boss, stroke guru, friend, Tony. And there are so many revelations. Total respect, Tone, for the journey you have been on over the years. Really looking forward to the Reading 107 story. Cheers, Robert. Geoff Hopkins was also a presenter-producer at Reading 107. I had no idea Tony Grundy, he says, was involved in the original Kick FM bid. You see, Geoff, you don't know everything, do you? Anyway, he went on to say, I did a week's freelancing there in 2003 and four, and was never asked back. <laughs> Again, the good news there for me is I wasn't involved then, so it wasn't my fault, Geoff. Sorry about that. Matt Cadman, actually these days, a producer at Radio 4, but a presenter on any number of radio stations and a brilliant lad. Tony always reminds me of the time I phoned him when he was putting Kick FM together. And I was asking him to be on the station when I was only about 15. But I had a don't ask, don't get attitude. You absolutely did, Matt. And I'll tell you something else you had is a very good, polite manner. And I liked you. And I asked you how old you were and said 15. I said, OK, normally our presenters are older. But I was taught a long time ago by Philip Birch, encourage young talent because they're the future. And actually, when you think about it, Matt, 20 years later, we attended your wedding, you and Isha. And it's now one year on from that. So you've just had your first anniversary. Congratulations to both of you. But that's a good example of the radio family 
sticking together as friends. Cheers, Matt. Now, I did say last week I wanted to share with you some devastating news just after Kick FM in Newbury had gone on air. That was in May 2000. All was going well up to July 2000. And over these podcasts, as you know, I shared all sorts of moments, good, bad, funny and sad. So hopefully you kind of got to know me a bit. Suffice to say that by 2000, our two daughters were growing up fast. Francis, 15 and Vicky, 19. They were both lovely, lovely girls. Vicky being the eldest was always the more outgoing and had loads and loads of friends who seemed to absolutely adore her. Vicky had a very busy social life and university was probably the next step for her. But she got in with probably a bad crowd at that time. And tragically on July the 10th, she took something she shouldn't have done. And despite everybody's efforts, died at John Ratcliffe Hospital in the early hours of July the 11th. As parents, nowhere in your planning for your children is this ever a thought. It's totally devastating. Sue and I, and of course, Francis, took time out together to gather ourselves. One of the advantages of self-employment is you can take time off. Everybody understood. The idea of standing up in front of any kind of audience at that time just didn't figure in my plans. I don't think I could have done it. We worked as a team, Sue and Francis and I, to get through it all. And of course, supported by a wonderful family and loads of friends. But you're doing all the things you just don't want to do, but you've got to. Amazingly, Francis asked to read a lesson at the funeral. To be honest, I couldn't have spoken a single word in the church that day. My brother, Nick, and my brother-in-law, Dave, both spoke beautifully. Frances seemed to suddenly take on some of Vicky's confidence and she read beautifully. You just have to get through things on a day-to-day -day basis and that's what we were doing. The three of us agreed that we would always talk about Vicky and the happiness she brought. We also recognised that grieving hits you at different times in different ways and that we were below and okay on other occasions but we would be there to support each other when we knew that was happening. We took a month off and went on holiday together. That was a holiday, actually, that we'd already booked with Vicky included. It was to a place we loved being. So you can imagine it was a mixture of great sadness and happiness at the same time, remembering some of the wonderful days we'd had there. After that break, we attempted to get back to a very different sort of normal. It is and always will be with you every day thereafter. But we knew Vicky wouldn't have wanted us to be sad every day. I gradually started to do sessions at Warwick University again. That was tough because I would often previously have included stories about Vicky as a great negotiator to make the audience laugh because they got kids and they understand what great, uh, great negotiators kids are playing one off against the middle. But I, I just couldn't do that anymore. It was so personal. Anyway, life goes on, as they say, and I wanted to be as strong as I could Sue and Francis. So back to business. Kick FM in Newbury was on air and sounding pretty good. I'd had conversations with Andy Craig of Milestone about 
a, a mutual interest in re a Reading license if and when it was advertised. I talked to Andy again, even ahead of the license being advertised, Andy and I knew of potential competition. Andy said, amongst his connections, he knew John Modeski, chairman of Reading Football Club and a very successful businessman who created and sold Auto Trader for an awful lot of money, over 200 million, I believe. He had had the Modeski Stadium built for the football club, magnificent. He was effectively Mr. Reading. We also believed that the Reading Evening Post, now owned by Guardian Media Group, could also potentially be part of our group. So a meeting was set up, an initial meeting. And in that meeting, I told them of the way I'd operated with Kick and the way I would operate with uh, New City FM, as we came to call it. And they agreed with that. We talked about it and we knew that there were probably four, we believed, four potential bidders. And we'd be the last one being set up. So there was Crown, which was Reading Chronicle, the big competitors of the Reading Evening Post. And that bid was being run by Phil Coop, who interestingly was uh, my news editor 2-1-0 in all those days ago. Reading 107 Oracle, as it was called, who had done seven RSLs, those that are temporary licenses, and at one time resided at the Reading Evening Post, but had fallen out with them. And RFM, a group that had split from original Reading 107, seemed to have a, a trait there of splitting with people, Reading 107. Anyway, Juice FM, another group, under a, a company called Forever, um, and they were aimed at 15 to 24s, and they were based in the Northwest, I think. And there was us. We called ourselves New City FM. I'll explain why later in a minute. Reading Evening Post, John Modeski, Andy Craig, and myself. At that first meeting, I told them about all of these groups, and they knew some anyway, so we traded those thoughts. They said, Tony, do you think, because we're the last group to be put together here, that we can actually win this? I said, just take a second and look around the room. Look at the people and what they stand for and what they bring to the table. So the answer to your question is yes, and we will win this license. The thing is, when you have got that kind of clout, you can achieve a hell of a lot very quickly, in my opinion. They agreed with my idea for 5% and me to be project director. I was to be based at the office at Reading Evening Post, Tessa Road offices in Reading. In some ways, it's a lonely task when you're doing that, but I was surrounded by the staff and management of the Reading Evening Post. They were all very supportive. Joan Yule, the MD, was very helpful. And Andy Murrell, the editor, and all his editorial staff, people like Hilary Scott were there. They were brilliant. I was doing about three days a week there, plus my Warwick University dates with British Aerospace. The name of our station, as I said previously, was New City FM, which was in line with Reading Town's application to achieve city status, which was going in at that time. So the name reflected both Reading's confidence and our confidence in that concept. And we actually believed the timing was going to be almost simultaneous. So that was the plan. So New City FM was launched. So our group was formed in late 2000. I had a good feeling from the very beginning about this application. As I say, it felt good right from the start. The board, the board meetings, I'll tell you, were very interesting because you had these very powerful people around the table. We even were joined by John Myers, who'd been appointed chief executive of Guardian Media, and he attended our meetings. John was a client when I helped sales training at Century Radio launch in the Northeast some time before. He was a larger-than-life character, 
in every sense. At the radio station, he called everybody team, so he didn't have to remember their names. But he brought a lot of radio clout to the table. The chairman, John Modeski, owner of Reading FC, a very sharp business brain, in my opinion. John Cooling, his chief executive of uh, John's publishing company, Goodhead. Joe Newell and Chris Roberts, MD and chief executive of the Reading Evening Post. Andy Craig, TV presenter and owner of Milestone Group, a media company who by this time owned Kick FM and Basingstoke Station and little old me at 5%. But there was never a dull moment at those board meetings. You really had to be on your toes. And every time we had a board meeting, usually about 10 o'clock in the morning, I would go out running 6.30 in the morning. And that was to get a psychological advantage because you've got all these multimillionaires around the table. And it was just to get an advantage. And in my head, I was thinking, well, none of you were out this morning running at 6.30, mainly because they were probably being driven to the meeting by their chauffeurs in their big limousines. Anyway, the second thing was, if it all goes wrong, I can run faster than any of you and you won't catch me. My task before the license was formally advertised was to differentiate in people's minds, New City FM from all the competitors. This was not just amongst business groups, but at local council level, community groups, leisure groups. In fact, anywhere and everywhere that our target, primary target market of those 24 to 54 year old adults came into contact. The license was formally advertised in spring, summer, 2001. Two major issues were before me then, where the studios might be, so I was talking to lots of estate agents, and probably more importantly in my mind, transmitter site, because that's how far you can go with your signal, and a poor signal can cost your audience. All our engineer contacts were telling me the best possible site was the Thames Water site at Tilehurst. So this is where you use the power of the board. I went to John Modeski, because Thames Water up to this point had flatly refused approaches from radio groups. I said to John, do you know the chief executive of Thames Water? And he said, yes, he's Tom or Larry or whatever. I know him pretty well. I said, good. Can you phone him and get him to agree to our transmitter being on his site? It really would be important. Guess what? Half an hour later, I got a phone call from John and he says, yeah, he said yes to that. No problem. So we got an advantage none of the other contenders could have. Politically also, all the time, you're looking to get support from people, letters of support very often. And there was a strong Labour MP at that time called Martin Salter. The paper arranged for us to meet. Martin was very powerful. And he interviewed me for about an hour based on our thinking and our plans. And apparently he'd done this with every other group as well. He was tough, but very fair. I liked him. He agreed to support our bid and put that in writing. And that was a big, big boost again, very important. So we got shed loads of letters of support, which at that time with applications, I think they weighed them. But anyway, we had an impressive bag full. And the Evening Post was so helpful in compiling the list of the correct people to talk to. Now, the deadline was September 2001 to put those applications in. So prior to that, we put together a temporary license. As I've said before, they're called RSLs. That was for 28 days to give people a flavour of what would be all about. That turned out to be the last RSL before the actual uh, award was uh, advertised. I think we based it at the Butt Centre in Reading. 
where we had a good relationship with the general manager, Steve Fork, who was a good guy. That all went well. So we got the application in on time, September 2001. But then there's the wait, and it was a wait till May 2000. Bear in mind, they had five applicants, 2002. What happens in the meantime? Well, one of the things that happens is they ring you and there's a telephone interview, not Zoom these, as it is these days, but a telephone interview. So you get most of the board there so they can all answer questions if needs be, put it on speakerphone. And yeah, it's quite nerve wracking because you don't know what they're going to ask you. And there's a 100 page document they're asking from. But it seemed to go well. And we were told it would be decided in May 2002. Then they give you a time and a date for that decision. I thought, okay, we'll get the whole of the board together because to be honest, we're either gonna celebrate or say goodbye. I was confident, but you never know. We all chatted, we got there together and we all huddled together and we kind of chatted nervously as the deadline approached with, for the time. Now, which way would it go? Well, the time for the phone call into the Reading Evening Post boardroom passed. Five minutes ticked by, 10 minutes ticked by. They were all staring at me. I don't know how that can help, but they all were. And one of them said, Tony, what does this mean? I said, I haven't a clue, which is probably not a good thing for the project director to say. Anyway, just at the point we're all getting a bit desperate, we got a call from reception at the Evening Post who said, the radio authorities on the phone and they've had problems trying to get through and have been trying to get through for some time. Should I put the call through? And I said, yes. So I took the call. And that is where we'll leave it till next week. Aren't I terrible to you? You're going to find out what happened then. Do make sure you're there next week and listen for the contact details if you want to get in contact at the end of this podcast. And be ready to listen next week. And I'll tell you that big news at a time and a place to suit you. See you later. Bye. This podcast is in loving memory of Vicky Grundy who was born on the 10th of June, 1981, and died in the early hours of the morning on the 11th of July, year 2000. Grundy Scrambles with Tony Grundy is a For The Now media production. If you would like to get in touch with Tony or have any radio stories of your own, email tony at forthenow.co.uk.